Pop Alliance release party is mm-hmm. on Friday, right? I'm That's actually right. I'm psyched for that. Well, just way up close to the mic. And just to let people know who we are, we're not a yo-yo. Uh, no, we are not the Yo-Yo club. Advertising Collective. That's on no, Thursdays. That's right. Uh, we We're are the Arts Report. Yeah, broadcasting from the unceded Musqueam territory of UBC's Point Grey campus. And today we are joined by author and musician. Yeah. Yeah. yeah sure. Yeah. I still do some music, and I do, and I write, and I I do all sorts of things. So I now you have, Aaron I, Chapman. Yes. And now you're holding <laughs> with the Yo-Yo. When I, I we're talking a little bit about sort of old history here a little bit today and old neighborhoods. When I was growing up in Vancouver, I don't know if. It's a little bit of a different age in our years, but sort of in the same batting zone of age. That uh, when I was a kid at school, they would send groups of like pro- yo- professional yo-yo mm-hmm. yo-yoists out right. to schools, right. uh, and they would do these presentations. It must have been illegal. Somebody must have eventually come in and said, "You can't come in and sell this to kids." But they would come in and sell yo-yos and do these grand sort of yo-yo demonstrations. I saw it sp- that's very same thing spoofed on The Simpsons one time, but. I remember as a kid at Quilchena Elementary High School, mm-hmm. uh, or probably elementary school, uh, and then later Point Grey where I attended, both in Carisdale, which we're going to talk about, of course, in a little bit, is that they did these yo-yo demonstrations to get the kids to buy yo-yos. Did you have that as well? I, I totally did. Uh, I I was born in the early 90s, and we still yeah. we still did uh, yo-yo presentations. So when, when you were talking about yo-yo, I remember people coming in, they are doing like walking the dog, they are doing it all around the world, exactly. all that kind of stuff. I'm pretty sure somebody got hit in the head with a yo-yo, and they're like, okay, we need to stop. Or, or somebody just stepped in and said, you can't do this on school grounds right. because I remember there was a shift. Eventually, they sort of were off school ground on the sidewalk. They and, started phasing <laughs> out. Yeah, a little bit. They sort of skirt the laws of... of uh, Which uh, was really awkward when it was the salesman wearing the large trench coat going, hey, kids, you want to buy some <laughs> No, yo-yos? there we go. You see, there's those dangers going <laughs> it on. It gave yeah. the wrong impression, let's say. <laughs> For our audiences who uh, might not uh, know... We'll give a bit of a uh, an intro towards your book. It is about Carisdale. Uh, it, well, I've written I write Vancouver history uh, right. related things, and I've written three different books: one on the history of the Commodore Ballroom, uh, another on the history of the Penthouse Nightclub. Mm-hmm. Um, so two venues, and another book about uh, sort of more East Vancouver related. Uh, about East Vancouver street gangs in the 1970s and what the Vancouver Police Department did to fight them, but. To a certain extent, they're all about neighborhoods, and they're about places. Are all about places in Vancouver, and and how those have changed over the years. And and because I'm, I was born and raised in Carisdale in the mm-hmm. 1970s and, and 80s. Um, I went to high school in the 80s there. Um, I, I Carisdale still, even though I don't live there anymore, mm-hmm. and I've moved to, I've lived in many different parts of the city over the years. Uh, Carisdale is, is is still sort of focuses in my mind, and it's and it's part of my childhood, so I remember it very well. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And what this kind of bears in upon now is on the 17th. Yes. You're doing an introduction for Blue Velvet at the Cinematheque? It's, no, it's at the, the, it's, it's the Van City. City. Van City. Yeah, Van City right. uh, uh, Theater down on Seymour there. Four block difference. Exactly, yeah. <laughs> and just down from the penthouse, as a matter of fact. <laughs> but uh, uh, we're, showing, we're showing Blue Velvet um, as a part of Cinema Salon. And before the film, um, I'm going to talk about a little bit how Certainly, when I saw when I saw Blue Velvet for the first time, and most people, when it comes to David Lynch movies or David Lynch's oeuvre, if I can use that right. word on the radio, uh, was that there was a uh, most people know Twin Peaks and That's sort right. of the newer stuff, or, or the revisit, of course, and whatnot, or Dune in my case, or Dune, yeah, very good, yeah, or you know, and many people, depending on uh, maybe what your favorite is or how old you are, even Eraserhead or, or Wild at Heart or any of the number of these films or Lost Highway. Are, are planted in your mind, but um, there was something about Carisdale that that when I first saw the movie, of course, it, the, if you haven't seen the film, it takes place in sort of the small town setting, which is very, mm-hmm. very white, neat, and clean on the on the top, but underneath there are these sort of strange things and and mysterious things and sometimes evil things going on. I saw that uh, very same thing in Carisdale, so it really hit mm-hmm. home with me, and for a number of different reasons, which we might get into shortly here. So. That's actually very interesting because I grew up in Carisdale as well. There you go. Yeah, I grew up in Carisdale in like the early like 2000s, and there was a there's actually a lot of change that happened yes. in that short period of time. There were like new apartments coming in. There was, uh, if I remember correctly, I lived across. There's that one really big tree. I don't know if it's a. There's a lot of big trees. I know. In Carisdale. I know. Uh, what what area? What what corner did you draw uh, up near? Shoot, shoot, shoot. Vine you Street. Vine Street. Vine. Okay. Yes. Vine and. And thirty seventh, forty forty first, forty first. Okay, you're closer up to uh, the, so the, the drag the, there. It's the one next to. There was in during my time. There was a organic store, like a little like there was a. 
There was a grocery store. It used to be a dollar mart. Then changed into a grocery store. Right. And then there was a tree right next to it. I don't know if I'm helping anymore, but right. now I think now there's the um, the big old uh, sh- is it Shoppers? I think so. Is it Wait, Shoppers, is right? It the... Is it Shoppers? That's over, yeah, on 41st yeah. And, and, yeah, close to Vine, I guess it would be, yeah. yeah that's then it. you have the Shoppers, and then you have, I think they changed it to another, like, health food store. But the tree, I think the tree's still there. Yeah, that whole that whole strip of 41st, when I was a, when I was a kid, some of my friends used to say going downtown was going up to 41st. Uh-huh. Because Caresdale's sort of isolated as a neighborhood. It's not part of kits it's not no. it's there's a divi- there's certainly a division between Shaughnessy mm-hmm. and 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 Caresdale Shaughnessy was the richer end of town now when i was growing up those those definitions weren't weren't necessarily so different as they are today mm-hmm. because i in in when i was in high school in the 80s dunbar was not uh, now it's dentists and lawyers and university <laughs> professors that Assorted want to close community yes. yeah you know uh, but Very. back back then it, it was it the very common thing for dunbar was the there was a family there. There was usually four kids. They were all male, and the dad was in construction. And the <laughs> and the four brothers played sports, and they were big tough guys. Mm-hmm. Now, you know, the neighborhood makeup of the neighborhood changed. Caresdale, when I was growing up, it, it, it again it had that small town feel. Forty first, that strip. Many of the stores are surprisingly still there. They are the the bootery, the the, the, the Hager's Books, mm-hmm. and these places have been around for forty years uh, mm-hmm. or more in many cases. So there's a certain element even today that Caresdale I think hasn't changed. But as I say, when I was growing up there, there was while it had that very sort of uh, very suburban feel and almost not a contemporary suburban feel, it was lost. It felt like it was lost in the fifties when I was growing up there, and and and, and I think also was what because my parents mm-hmm. were of a of a slightly older generation than most of the parents of kids my age at the time. I grew up a little bit more with their music and a little bit more of their values and what they used to watch on television. Mm-hmm. So, like what? Well, just any, any, certainly certainly things of their of their of any kind of fifties culture and mu- and music and, and choice of films. Mm-hmm. Um, I remember watching. I remember very distinctly watching. Um, uh, you know, Lawrence of Arabia and Bridge on the River Kwai <laughs> with my dad and movies that he had seen in the theater, probably back then when they were released in the f- late 50s, early 60s. Mm-hmm. A- and, uh, but growing up in Cares, in that part of town with, with that in the house, it felt like you were living in a bit of a time capsule. Now, you're right. I think Cares, though, changed, changed a lot, especially yeah. it began to change in the 1980s. When I was a kid, there were a lot of people there that just had, uh, there were a lot of uh, older British people. That mm-hmm. lived there. I remember everybody on our block had accents. I remember there was uh, yeah. also a British market too. Yes, that's right. Yeah, yeah. And, and and so there, it, it felt a little bit colonial, a little bit sort of uh, a small town England uh, it, feel. It, it did feel like that too when <laughs> when I moved in there. Yeah, it's just Father Brown just passes through. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. I think it's because of all the surrounding neighborhoods too. You have that that one part of town that felt very like um, I would say like. Busy, but not mm-hmm. like super busy, just busier. Exactly. And then everywhere else is just kind of flanked by these houses. Now houses apart- and, the, and the apartment buildings and yeah. things like that. Yeah. So, quiet. So it, it had that sort of quiet small town aspect, but at the same time, I remember distinctly, and especially in my teenage years, and maybe when you're a teenager, you began to sort of look at your neighborhood in a little bit of a different concept, or you mm-hmm. begin to sort of see things you didn't see when you were a little kid uh, and whatnot. I, I, there were all sorts of mysterious things that happened when I was, when I remember one night walking home. And I saw a jacket in the middle of, this was about 37th and Elm, and just left there. And I thought, see, somebody dropped their coat. And I I, I think to myself, the... You know the criminal in, in the deep in my heart. I thought, I, I bet there's a wallet in there. So I rushed to pick it up, and I picked yep. it up. It was very heavy, and I thought, geez, what's in there? And and I, op- I it was dark around, of course. I'm the only person on the street, and I opened up the side pocket, and there in the side pocket was a machine gun clip. Oh wow! Full of bullets. And I immediately looked around, thinking, "Well, if this is the gun, if this is the ammo, where's the gun?" And yeah. I'm looking, you know, I, I was about a block away from home. I ran the way home with the jacket and the and the clip, and looked out the window, and there were police cars sort of circling around. Something oh, had wow. happened, yeah. and whatnot. So again, little, little things like this. And then, what happened was, I put the the. The, the machine gun clip, which was like a AK-47 sort of banana uh-huh. uh, machine gun clip, if you're familiar, if you're you firearms people listening. Yes. Uh, and I put that on my nightstand, and my dad came in the morning to wake me up and saw that, and it <laughs> caused a huge, I had oh, to do no. huge explain. And we phoned the police, and, and, it, and the, the guy came by to pick it up, and yep. I asked him what it was before, and he said I... He didn't know. He just got off. Uh, he had just was his first shift on after being away for a few days. So, uh, so there's these little things. I can think of other things too. There were strange things that started to happen on weekends, mm. and there were strange. You know, at that time too, there was the railway that went through Carrollton. Yes, there was. Um, and that stopped sort of mid '80s or I guess early '90s, very early '90s. Mm-hmm. But there was a train that also went through. So you would hear the sound of a train going through. There was all these sort of romantic. 
uh, sort of evocative things that were happening it in Paris was, at the yeah. time. So it was easy to, it was an easy, very easy place for your imagination to take off. Mm-hmm. You have like the Faraday, so you kind of go back to like the you know, good old time. <laughs> exactly, right? yeah. And then you have the train coming in, and then exactly. So there were between, as I say, between all the sort of that very sort of nice. Uh, you know, sort of uh, pedestrian, very yes. clean yes. end of town. There were these strange things that going on. So when I saw Blue Velvet, I immediately thought this movie could have happened here. Mm-hmm. Uh, mm-hmm. I, you know, the, the same things. Uh, I, I I could have been Jeffrey finding an ear in a in a in a, in a field. I was trying <laughs> to find some way to insert that one into the story. <laughs> and a human ear. No. And a human ear. Okay. No. Wait. And a human. Oh, okay, yeah. Let's do it. That's that's it. You know, like you 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 would find things. You know, there's strange things. You'd come across strange things on the side of the street or in a back alley. Right. You know, Caresdale is also a network of alleys. So yeah. it, it, hit, it, it hit home. It that, really mo- that, that movie sort of hit home, you know, and it had all the sort of Lynchian tropes, as you say, of the trees, of yeah. this, you know, the, the sort of the, a different world that, it ha- that, that at night would occur. Mm-hmm. So um, when the cinema salon people uh, approached me to, to present a film, uh, they asked for a short list of films, and, and some of the ones we actually couldn't get. Um, right. Some of the ones were too, but Blue Velvet was an easy one to get, and, and, and I had a reason to to uh, present that one. So at the at the presentation of that before the film, before the screening of the film, we're going to talk mm-hmm. a little bit about some of the comparisons of the film, and maybe because you know there are certainly some very um, uh, some scenes in the movie that are not easy to watch. Of course. Um, and when they first came out in the mid '80s, it, it was a very controversial film at the time. It'll be interesting. In today's contemporary sensibility, to mm-hmm. watch those today, watch that some of those same scenes today, and mm-hmm. and 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 how maybe the audience will react to it, or how we'll talk about that after the the screening, I think as well. So mm-hmm. now that's interesting to me because uh, now you mentioned before we when we were talking that you were a musician. Yes. Little bit, and could could you elaborate on that? Because you've been here before. Were you were you punk? Because I I you as a punk? I was I was in a punk rock band called the Real McKenzies uh, in the in the early nineties. I, I I got into punk rock, and it occurs to me there's a double entendre with that that I actually did not intend. <laughs> <laughs> oh, you meant a punk is an insult? No, no, I no, I no, knew no, exactly. No, I, I mean, for like all all the all the fifty year old Midwesterners who watch the show, like, let's <laughs> well, see, get informations about the home. Sexuals. <laughs> Thanks, Dan. <laughs> the the Keep commenting on random pages, why don't you? <laughs> the uh, mm-hmm. yeah, I, I got into. I, I was a touring musician for about twenty years, and 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 I played with. Um, uh, I beginning starting off with the real McKenzie. I later played with a bunch of different bands: Bocephus King, the Town Pants. Gosh, uh, I played saw on some records with the Bigotanias and and uh, some other people in town. But um, you ever play with Joe Keithley? Uh, I know Joe, but I, I we never know. No, we did it. We, we've never played together. We did a we did a TV skit together once. Really? But that's I, I, I don't know if that's on YouTube or whatnot. But anyway, but I but I, I I got to know a lot of the people in town, and that's another thing. Like, Caresdale did not have any punk rock credential whatsoever. <laughs> it was not East Vancouver. Really? Yeah. It was, but but strangely enough, the epicenter, the beginnings of rock and roll in Vancouver, happened in Caresdale. Because at the Caresdale Arena in nineteen in the mid nineteen fifties, um, there Bill Haley and the Comets played the very first rock concert ever in the city of Vancouver. There, um, later on, there was in the uh, I wrote about in the Vancouver Courier a series of concerts that happened there uh, uh, with the Clash and um, uh, Ozzy Osbourne played there, the Jam played there. So that was another thing that happened because Caresdale was so different. Um, the when these concerts happened, they would bring in all these people from other parts of the city that, that certainly didn't belong there, and they would cause a lot of havoc in the neighborhood when they put these shows on. But that's what also made, it made Caresdale a sort of odd sort of uh, uh, time capsule, this crucible that didn't match anywhere else. You know, it's sort of like a rock and roll high school kind of thing where you've got like yeah. these, these archetypes from like the, the, this uh, Happy Days-esque thing. Sure. Riding with the Ramones. I- exactly. Yeah, your parents know your Ramones. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. It was like that, you know, and, and, uh, and it would really cause a lot, especially at night, the, ch- the atmosphere and, and the volume, uh, you know, would, tra- would change. Uh, uh, Motorhead played the Caresdale Arena and mm-hmm. four blocks away from my house, you could hear the show, you know, and, and as I got into sort of learn some of the history and, and I about, sort of about those shows and about the arena, then I sort of dug into realized there was a countercultural thing happening. At uh, Allen Ginsberg pr- was in Caresdale in mm-hmm. I think 1966 uh, on a nightly basis when uh, at at a house two blocks down from mine at the Tallman residence, where later a lot of Van- uh, Vancouver poets, George Bowring being one of them, who was eventually 
would be my next door neighbor, oddly enough, oh, uh, wow. uh, did these did these lectures and they read poetry at night and afterwards played Monopoly and mm-hmm. I and I gather uh, from George. Uh, 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 that Ginsburg was an excellent Monopoly player. So this sort of hippie counterculture guy was actually a great capitalist when he needed to be. <laughs> I can um, see it. But uh, so, you know, the fact that, 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 you know, one day the clash came to Caresdale and Alan Ginsburg was just down the street, for me, all these things were going on. That was actually before I was born. But I began to sort of look at my neighborhood a little bit different. And I think that probably sparked an interest in city history, mm-hmm. in Vancouver history as a whole, because growing up, you don't think about these things. Your, your own town is the most sort of least interesting of place. Course. You want to get out of it. Yep. And you want to move to New York or Los Angeles or London <laughs> or something or some exciting part of what there's. You realize there's actually some very interesting things sort of happening, again, just mm-hmm. under the surface that you never maybe knew about. So I was going to say, speak for yourself. I moved from London to here. Well, they <laughs> different, different London. A different London. London. A different London. Still. Well, we welcome you here. My question actually pertains to that, your interest in, in your, uh, your deep knowledge of Vancouver's history. And as a historian of Vancouver, and as uh, I think your special interest is in the entertainment industry. To a certain extent. It, it's, it's many different things, and, and a little bit of crime history probably as well. Mm-hmm. But, but it's, uh, yeah, it, it, you know, there's, the, the history of Vancouver has been told many, many times over and over again. We get a very boardroom presentation and a very sort of city right. ch- uh, chamber of commerce. Mm-hmm. Uh, we, we learned about the railways that came through and and, uh, and how the city real estate was divided. We get a very sort of businessman's attitude about how this the city history was. And and you know, if I hear one more story about the three greenhorns who <laughs> developed the West End, I'm gonna I'm gonna puke. There's there's a you, there's a lot more things you can learn that happened at the when the sun went down in Vancouver and some of the deals that went down and some of the things that happened, the people that were here and some of the connections that were made. Um, so so that, that has, has interested me. And, and certainly, you know, Vancouver has a great show business history as well. We were on that trail, that show business trail, that, that we were the end of the vaudeville line mm-hmm. where, or in many cases, the start where a, a tour, you know, the Marx Brothers would come here prepare, you know, a show they would, right. the first show they would do at maybe the Orpheum Theater. Mm-hmm. Um, and then they'd go down to Seattle, Portland, San Francisco. And by the time they got to Los Angeles, where all the booking agents were, they'd had a couple of live rehearsals, you know, kind of <laughs> right. ready in the, and, the, and the show would be right, ready to go. You know, so Vancouver w- was uniquely placed. Um, it was uniquely situated because of that. So many, so many shows. So all these things kind of weave together, you know. And um, as I say, I'm born and raised here, which I, I guess there wasn't a strange thing to me growing up because there were a lot. I had a lot of friends who were born and raised here. Mm-hmm. I guess people move away, and after a while, it becomes more unique. I've lived in other places. I've traveled the world quite a bit as as a touring musician, right. but I always came back here. And sometimes when you would leave and come back, you'd see things that had changed. Right. You know, yeah. the, the 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 bookstore on the corner was now a pizza place. You know, like usually it's never the other way around. Um, but uh, <laughs> certain things would happen. And after after a while, I realized probably in my late twenties. Uh, you know, some of the, my conversations with old buddies, we would be talking and say, mm-hmm. you know, or, or at a certain point in our lives, we'd say, geez, I remember seeing, you talk about Joe Keith, I remember seeing DOA at the Starfish Room <laughs> in 1994, you know, and, and, uh-huh. and we stopped for a moment and thought, we're talking like 80-year-old men, but we're only in our 20s and 30s here, you know, like, what's happened in Vancouver? How come the city's changed so fast right, in the last 20 is. years that that, uh, some t- that that math can happen, that people relatively our age can talk about things five years ago with mm-hmm. a certain nostalgia? It's because the city's changed so much, and I realized that growing up and living here, I, I have memories of this city, and I saw things in this city change as they went, that I could tell you how different neighborhoods even smelled differently. Um, you know, Arbutus, um, just our Arbutus and Broadway mm. in the 1980s, I mean, you go there today, it's, you know, there's nothing really, it doesn't smell any different than any other president. But there was a brewery in that part of town. Mm-hmm. Uh, the old Molson Carling O'Keefe Brewery uh, was there. And uh, if you, in the, in the mornings, it smelled so much like hops in that end of town. It kind of made me sick. It was when I passed right. through there. It would be, it, it was, you could smell that from, from all around, you know. So mm-hmm. we don't have that. That's gone now. There's no record of that. And there's no record no. to record smells. But you can write about that in a book and talk about how the city's changed. And it's not just the fashion that's changed, not the buildings changed. It's not just the, 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 the you know, the inc- lower income and, and, and there's too many condos here, anything like that. Yeah. But you could talk about some of those things. And I remember uh, these things, as, you know, False Creek, another great example, that yeah. there were log booms in False Creek and there were factories and, and, and shipbuilding things down there and, and, and a lot of lumber, particularly a lot of lumber and, and, and wood-related uh, businesses down there. Barrel makers, God, you know, like businesses that aren't even around anymore, you know. So, so all this stuff began to sort of feed ideas that I had and that I, wanted, I really wanted to write about. So I think it kind of became part and parcel for, from that. So. 
with the connection to the nightlife, uh, sorry, no, would you ahead. ever think of doing something on Gassy Jack, considering how he founded <laughs> Gas Town? Oh, sure. And, and that's a but very... Just, here's a barrel of whiskey. Build me a city. Exactly. You know, like... And then a bunch of lumberjacks are like, sure! Yeah, exactly. That's uh, For people who don't know, you're, you're keying on something very important. Mm-hmm. The city began as a sort of a drunken bet. Uh, when Gassy Jack had a couple of kegs of whiskey and paddled into what is Gastown today and told the local guys that worked at the sawmill, if you build me a bar, I'll let you drink for free for one day. Mm-hmm. Um, and that, that, it was a pretty kind of rudimentary shack uh, that they built, but they built it for him in a hurry. They were thirsty. And that's how that, I mean, that's really the city kind of grew out of that corner, as we know, mm-hmm. in many ways. It sort of grew up in a little couple other spots as well as it, as it all sort of blended together. But, um, you know, for all that we talk about, the you know, the railways founding uh, Vancouver and, and, you know, business barons, uh, real estate barons, it really was a drunken bet that started Vancouver in a weird Never way. Never underestimate <laughs> the resolve of desperate alcohol. <laughs> there you go. Honest, that's exactly, true. Exactly. That's true. Yeah. My question was actually, because you know so many stories about Vancouver, what was your favorite one that you've told and what is one that you really want to tell people? Geez, that's a that's a that's a all encompassing question. That's great. Well, mm-hmm. does, I'll try and answer it two different ways. It, to a certain degree, it was the last book I did, which was a book about East Vancouver street gangs. Mm-hmm. This was a story that m- most people didn't know. When I was growing up in, and in high school, people talked about the Riley Park gang and yeah. the, and the Clark Park gang and some of these gang names, but there wasn't really any thing in the any books you could look up or anything like this and they were kind of this almost like a ghost story. Right. Don't go into that part of town or the Clark Park gang will get you. Uh-huh. Um and I did some research there and, and found um, it, it, it took a, it took a couple of years, and in fact, it took a little while to to ingratiate myself with some of the people that were around. But I discovered this amazing story that happened in really in, centered around 1972, um, where at the Rolling Stones concert mm-hmm. in 19, June 1972, where you could see the Rolling Stones for six bucks, <laughs> um, there was a riot at that concert, and the Vancouver Police Department blamed the riot on the Clark Park gang. Uh, a loose, very loose gang of East Vancouver youths that were called this because they centered around Clark Park up on mm-hmm. Commercial Fourteenth, and there was a huge riot. Then it was a big, it was an amazing uh, situation. International news that there was a riot at the Stones concert. Start to kick off of the tour for the Exile Main Street tour, that classic album. And um, in the wake of that, the Vancouver Police Department formed a, ver- a secret gang task force mm-hmm. to go after the gang. This had never done been defor- before or since. It was the media wasn't told about it. Um, there were certainly people in the police department and, and quote unquote average police that were aware about it. The neighborhood wasn't told about it, so they went in plain clothes, just with their guns, mm-hmm. no real identification, maybe a flashlight, at night to f- flush these guys out of the park and go after them. There were wiretaps; they followed them around and whatnot. And in the summer of 1972, there was a gang war, basically, in Vancouver because the gang members started to fight back. Mm-hmm. They started to stage incidents where they could draw police in and go after the gang members and, and, go, and go after the police and whatnot. Until in November of that year, of 72, there was a police shooting of a young gang member who was involved in a theft of a car. And I found a lot of the people that were around at that time. I found some of the police that were involved in that gang squad. Mm-hmm. And for the very first time, they told their stories. And to read it, it feels like something out of Chicago or, you know, right. or out of, it feels like some, so this a wild story. And I was very, I felt very pleased and privileged to tell that story because it hadn't really been told before. Mm-hmm. And I was able to connect a lot of things in the city that I don't think people had necessarily picked up on that the reason this happened is because of that. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm, I'm, I was really, and that, that was nominated for a BC Book Prize and did very well. It's still selling well. It's called The Last Gang in Town, that book. Mm-hmm. Uh, the next thing I'm working on is a book about Vancouver nightclubs. Ooh, nice. A little bit along the lines of sort of the penthouse and, and, and um, uh, Commodore Ballroom stories. Right. But these are the clubs that are, have disappeared and aren't around anymore. There's certainly ones you hear about the old classic cave and, and, and Izzy's Supper Club in the 50s. But even ones in my sort of time, you know, uh, places like the Town Pump or Richards on Richards mm. or the Starfish Room that were around in the 90s. Some of these had these had these great bands and, and a fascinating sort of stories that happened in them, but uh, are gone now. So it's sort of look sort of back at that. Uh, and I'm working on it with another writer by the name of Tom Carter. And that's going to be probably out next year. We're just doing the research and doing interviews right now. I just interviewed a guy. I just bumped into somebody on the, in a, on the bus on the way out here. A 92-year-old man by the name of Norman Young, who was a uh, involved in theater out here at UBC, and uh, and he mm. has such great memories of Vancouver. So uh, almost anybody over eighty immediately gets interviewed because mm-hmm. you don't know how much time they don't not sure they joke around how much they don't know how much time they have. But mm-hmm. uh, it, it'll be you know you, these these books take often 
you know, a hundred or two interviews of people of course, to, yeah. to put together and, and a lot of collection of material. But that's what I'm excited about next. So yeah, that sounds really exciting. I we definitely would love to we'll have uh, to have you back. Yeah, to by all talk means. About it, that sounds yeah. super cool. Well, come see Blue Velvet with us <laughs> on the 18th and uh, at the 17th. Se- pardon me, 17th. Yes, mm-hmm. uh, we'll we'll keep going to the 18th. You should know this. <laughs> yes, uh, and uh, uh, it'll be it'll be an interesting talk about how uh, what seems like a uh, you know a Hollywood film made in the 80s still has some interesting relevance to uh, the city today, I suppose. Well, I'd, I'd say David Lynch is he's one of those guys. He's like uh, well, like more contemporary person might be Wes Anderson in that you can play bingo with his movies. He's got a really noticeable oh, yeah. style yeah. and yeah. it works through his iterations. Definitely, yeah. Uh, now, before we cut to our PSA break, I do just uh, want to let people know, if you enjoy Afro-Cuban jazz, uh, there is currently an ongoing ticket giveaway for this Sunday, the 15th, uh, for, oh, I'm going to mispronounce this so badly. Try your best. Daime Arochena e Roberto Fonseca. That sounds that sounds. I think you did yeah. a good job. Yeah, I yeah. think I think that 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 was in Italian and but then I think I believe there. <laughs> I think the intention Spanish, of trying to get it right. That, um, so this is singer, right composer, here. ranger, and band leader Daime Arochena is a charismatic ambassador for Cuban music, uh, dressed in white to honor the Afro-Cuban religion of Santeria. She's incorporating chants mm-hmm. with jazz, rumba, and Cuban neo soul, um, uh, and accompanied on uh, the piano by Roberto Fonseca, who uh, has been hailed. by by a lot of people. Uh, he actually is a uh, member of the Buena Vista Social Club, so that's a pretty wow. solid yeah. um, claim. So if, if you want to see that, just uh, call in with uh, call in t- let us know your favorite yeah. jazz album, song, or artist. That sounds uh, great. Call in during one of our upcoming PSA breaks. and The number is 604-822-2487. Again, it's 604-822-2487. UBCCITR. God, your memory's good. <laughs> I have it written down right here. <laughs> anyway, thank you so much to uh, Mr. Aaron Chapman for joining thank us. Thank you. Thanks, guys, for having me. Very yeah, good. it was an amazing conversation. Wonderful. Cheers. Oh, hello there, and welcome to CITR and Discorder's How-To Guide to Being Your Best Possible Self. Step one, pick up a copy of the April issue of Discorder Magazine from one of our 100-plus distribution locations. Step two, read your copy of Discorder Magazine to map out your record store day with Sean Hogan's help. Figure out the steps for getting your own show on CATR 101.9 FM. Get inspired by the youth at the Real to Real Film Festival and find the X's that mark the spots of the closed and closing Vancouver venues with Elijah Teed. Step three, check out reviews of live music and comedy shows, albums, podcasts, and books. Step four, Thank your advertisers. Shout out to your mom, the AMS, the Rio Theater, Blueprint, Timber Concerts, the Rickshaw Theater, Mint Records, the Wise Hall, Art Rock Finale, High Life Records, Caribou Lager, MRG Concerts, the Doxa Documentary Film Festival, the Real to Real International Film Festival for Youth, the Cinematheque, the Spring Record Convention, Audio Pile Records, Red Cat Records, Neptune Records, the Verboden Festival. Step 5. Check out Discorder.ca for web exclusives and magazine updates. Step 6. Come into the station. Write for Discorder. Get a show. Duh. member of CITR and Discorder, but are you a true friend? Get a Friends of CITR and Discorder card for $20 for discounts in Kitsilano and around UBC at On the Fringe Hair Design, Rufus Guitar Shop, Stormcrow Ale House, The Bike Kitchen, UBC Bookstore, Australian Boot Company, and so many more. Welcome back to the Arts Report. You're listening to CITR Radio 101.9 FM, broadcasting from unceded Musqueam territory in Vancouver. I'm your host, Ashley Park. And I'm still Jake Clark. I uh, know, it's been a while. Yeah. Since I'm it back. Is. It's, good, it's good to be back. It really yeah. is. Because I think, you know, that might be for the best, <laughs> honestly, considering that, you know, my unfortunate tendency to mute the mics and then leave <laughs> no. the mics on. No. Really just leave the mics on at inappropriate times. <laughs> It, it, it's like a face in the crowd if I didn't hate the audience, but instead was just kind of unaware that the correspondent was speaking into a muted microphone. Hey. 
But, you know, at least we could still hear Lua. You, I, could, I, you could hear we, Lua. We, we, we could. It sounded like she was whispering. <laughs> it just made her sound more mysterious. Yeah. And people had to, like, you know, turn up their volume a little bit. Right? A little bit, a little yeah. bit. And then they're wearing headphones, and I come on to the Centurion deliver, like, in case you missed that, god damn it, why is he doing a John Lee Hooker impression now? <laughs> that wasn't a John Lee Hooker impression. This is a John but, Lee Hooker impression. That's a good one. So... Say something. Yeah. Um, well, shut up and say something's next. We're getting yeah. ahead of ourselves. Uh, so a couple of days ago, I saw Take Six in concert. And this mm. is actually for the an ongoing event, which is the Corleone Men's Choir 2018-2019 um, season, um, or, the, or which is part of the Van Man Choral Summit, excuse me, which is on for the 12th and the 13th. That's tomorrow and the day after at the Chan Center, actually. That's so uh, cool. With... What's, what's Take Six? So Take Six is an a cappella group composed of Claude McKnight, Mark Kibble, Joel Kibble, Dave Thomas, Alvin Che, and, Alvin che? che? and Christian Dentley. Uh and they're heralded by Quincy Jones, this is direct from the copy, as being the baddest vocal cats on the planet. I Ooh. actually don't know what Quincy Jones' voice sounds like, or I would have done an embarrassing impression there. Um, they're good. There's six guys with ten Grammys between them, mm-hmm. uh, which means the highest awarded vocal group in history. Even more than the Nylons, I know, right? Um, <laughs> and so this show, I, I didn't know what I was going into necessarily, because I've seen them, I've seen clips of them perform with some instrumental backing, right, right. I've seen the clips of them performing a cappella, I, and I didn't really know what their repertoire was going to be, because there's a lot of um, uh, tributes in the repertoire to various artists, including uh, Benny King, you know, Stayin' By Me, it's a great song, <laughs> a great album too, um, and... Uh, also, like it, 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 they're they're a gospel group, so there's some spirituals in there, right. and there's a lot of audience participation. There's a lot of clapping. There's a lot of snapping. Um, it's sort of an introductory personal percussion lesson, mm-hmm. um, and I gotta say, I really enjoyed it. It was a great show. Um, the, the The group has a pretty equal approach to addressing the audience, mm-hmm. insofar as you, you do feel like, the, and they do come together on the harmony really well. Like, they're a really well-arranged group of oh, people. Oh, that's nice. It's, nice. it's four tenors, a baritone, and a bass. So it there's a pretty impressive range there. And they arrange mm-hmm. themselves like they're a band, but just with vocal mix. Oh. So you get what is basically a bass solo done with just a bass voice. Mm-hmm. Which is, uh, which is uh, you know, kind of, kind of amazing, honestly, because... Uh, it's hard to to think of how that um, comes together just in terms of because I, I know how you beatbox, but it's when something sounds that much like an upright bass. Wow! It's yeah, it, it's almost uncanny mm-hmm. in points. That would be um, uh, Alvin Che, who is the voice a uh, bass singer. Excuse me. Uh, Joel Kibble can also do a spot on trumpet impression, which is. Pretty impressive. Again, these guys do it almost like it was all, to my knowledge, vocal. Mm-hmm. And it was a pretty good arrangement. Uh, they covered Happy by, by Pharrell. By Pharrell. Yeah, it's which is... Happy you belong if you feel like a room without, without a roof. roof. Yes, yeah, I, happy, that one. I, 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 I feel unthatched and unable to cope with the weather. Yeah, about fits. Um, <laughs> uh, but yeah, um, they covered Happy. Mm-hmm. Uh, Windmills of Your Mind, which I really liked. Uh, which is, you ever hear, hear that song? It's from the Thomas Crown Affair. No. Dusty Springfield did the original. Oh, okay. Sting did the one on the, the Pierce Brosnan one. It's a great song. Uh, I'm pretty I, sure I, I might have heard it before, but I just don't remember the actual. It, it lends itself well to covers. It's one of those songs that's sort of a trippy song. The original mm-hmm. version is honestly kind of ominous in a few ways. It's used really well in the movie. I remember watching the movie. And the thing that impressed me the most, which is pretty unusual for me to, when, while watching a movie with Faye mm-hmm. Dunaway in it, was the song. Because it's it's this really, I, I think you got there, is that the Mary Hopkin version? or This is Windmills of Your Mind, right? This is, yeah, it's Dusty yeah. Springfield, right? Yeah. Uh, or no, no, it's, it's a British guy. Yeah. Um, I think he did the original. Like Sting? It's a Sting. That, that is not Sting in the video. And it's not Sting. That's Noel Harrison in the video yeah. right here. Yeah, but... Uh, like it's it's a great song. They did that. Uh, they did does, uh, and of course they did "Stand by Me." And "Stand by Me" yeah. they did with a sing along. "Stand by Me" is one of those songs, uh, in no small part because of the movie. Where was it in the movie? 
Either way, you know the name, and you, like anybody yeah. who's ever listened to an oldie station will hear Stand By Me. It's mm-hmm. like sitting on the dock of the bay. It's a song that has lived forever it's on a Soul timeless Stage. like you know part of the aesthetic yeah and for a group like take six which really fuses like they're more rooted in classic r&b than they are in contemporary r&b okay. but i i can see why they are heralded like dr dre has said a lot of good things about these guys as for that matter has brian wilson hmm. uh, the beach Boy. like it's it's a these guys are pretty well acknowledged as being extremely, like, they've got chops. Talented performers. Yeah, and they are talented performers. And I can see them as being musicians' musicians if for their ability to, again, recreate the mix just based on vocals. Like, they're very technically proficient band. Mm-hmm. And I think that's a lot of the experience of listening to acapella groups in general because it's how they arrange these vocals. Mm-hmm. That, to me, is 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 about the size of it. Maybe, maybe I don't see as much in it, but... You know, acapella is acapella. It's just voices. Mm-hmm. It, it, it's, to me, a more limited part of the musical experience, but that doesn't mean it's necessarily one. You can still do a whole whack of a lot with it. Yeah. But you can also take it, uh, especially for homage, I think, because vocal genres that center on vocals. Like, I don't think this is necessarily true of jazz, but it's certainly true of R&B. And all, really all the genres that grew, grew out of gospel is that they're all centered on vocals that are re- intended to be very powerful, like projecting to the ceiling. And they do um, what they, they said, down-home gospel in this. It's good. It's, it's, it's generally very good, and they've got the great audience participation going. If you have the chance to see these guys, yeah, I'd recommend it. Mm-hmm. Uh, but I would also, like, the Van Man Choral Summit in general, if you, if you like this kind of music, you'll probably... The Choral Summit, I think, is more... Um, more praise music probably or more orchestrated choral music i don't know how many reefs they need to get the harmony right but there you go <laughs> i had to do it you know i did yep but um you got a little chuckle out of me uh yeah <laughs> yeah yeah uh, that's all i'll get a yeah, little chuckle mostly it's just oh really you keep doing that joke again come on jake but for people who want to see Take Six, that's that's a queenie right yeah well actually they're, they're not there uh, uh anymore but the but... van choral Yes, uh, the, at the Queenie, there is Lion Share on June 8th, mm-hmm. and uh, the, there is the Canadian Choral Composition Competition, which is uh, the, I was going to do an alliteration with the word alliteration, but that's pretty impressive in and of itself, <laughs> at the Orpheum on May 10th, and tomorrow and the day after is the Van Man Choral Summit at the Chan Center, so yeah. if you want to check that out, that's you certainly can. That's pretty local, can. around UBC. Yeah, and what you can also do is call in to our show to pick up some tickets for Sunday. That's right. It's going to be pretty dope, I hear. That sounds... Any minute now. <laughs> it's 604-822-2487 for Any. those who want to know the number. 604-822-2487, UBCCITR. We are giving away tickets. Although, speaking of vocal performances, I also did see Shut Up and Say Something. Shut up. Say something. <laughs> <laughs> so, um, for I, I was not aware of Shane Koizan, really, before I saw this mm-hmm. film. And uh, for people who don't know who Shane Koizan is... He's the dude from the Olympics. Yeah, that's uh, the 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 bearded the guy with the the large guy with the Amish beard and the powerful poetry. That's that's him. Mm-hmm. Um, voice of Citibank, I think, uh, could be. Uh, he's probably he's one of the more famous slam poets, at least in North America, uh, which is interesting to me because one thing that I realized after seeing this this the 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 film is a documentary about him. It touches a lot on people recognizing him, saying, oh yeah, your poetry is really inspiring. Mm-hmm. Um, and the thing I realized is that two of the most famous poets, at least which I'm aware of, him and Rupi Kaur, are Canadian. Mm-hmm. Which is interesting because like Shane Koizan is presenting at the Olympics and Rupi Cowers and Ariana Grande's Twitter feed. Like, that's both, on both scores, pretty quantifiably famous to a degree. And it's certainly impressive for someone who makes poetry because poetry is, uh... Why do I do that thing with that? Um, poetry is one of those things where even when you could make a living selling books, it was hard to make a living off of poetry. And, like, I'm, I was trying to think of poets who I know who made a living just off poetry alone. And I, 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 Shane Koizan doesn't like the, the thing shows him writing scripts and collaborating with musicians as well. I don't know what Rupi Kaur is doing otherwise, but I know Rupi Kaur is moving units. Um, the thing that really, 
occurred to me though was that probably the only poet I know who worked solely in poetry that I can like recall in the past century would have been E. E. Cummings. Even then, he spent most of his later life on the lecture circuit. I'm just gonna search poets who made who made bank. Let's see here. Um, it it, it goes. I'm sorry. Did you mean? Oh <laughs> <laughs> uh, well, there's Robert W. Service. That's a Wikipedia thing. In Robert the, Service. Yeah, William Service. He wrote the shooting of Dan McGrew and the cremation of Sam McGee. Oh yeah. When when was that? When was he active? He was uh, act, but uh, he was active in 1874 to 1958. Yeah. So, so he's not 21st century. Contemporaneous. E. Yeah. Cummings. Cummings would have been younger, but um. Yeah, like that's sort of, and was he was he solely a poet? He wasn't solely a poet, but his main thing was poetry. He had a few uh, fiction uh, books and a few nonfiction, oh, okay. and a little bit of music too. Really? Yeah, because it's it's one of those things where there's a lot of and he's Canadian. Yeah. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Well, it's cremation of Sam McGee, yeah, right? Yeah, you got like E. E. Cummings was an E. Cummings was American, um, mm-hmm. but I'm like I I really can't think of poets who solely like T. S. Eliot was a publisher. Uh, on top of that, Frank O'Hara kept his day job at the Museum of Modern Art mm. uh, in New York. Jack Spicer was an academic. I'm just gonna I write millionaire think. poets and see if we find any. Yeah, it's really gonna. That's oh really? There's there's, a, there's, there's, actual, there's results. Though. There's an actual article. Is it possible to be a millionaire poet by BBC News? I'm I, I I'm really wondering if this is a. Okay, that's a great photo there. The guy with like the infinity scarf. Yeah. Yeah. yeah that, Opening that's... up a, a, a black notebook, possibly a moleskin. I, I was going to – oh, it's, it's that guy in your MFA. Uh, <laughs> yeah, you, you know, think the same thing. Could be. I, I do want to take this point to note that I was just published in a chapbook by UBC Slam, mm-hmm. although it does include a limerick about elevators. So, uh, yeah, I'm not sure if I have a bias here. Yeah, I'm trying to I'm trying to see if there's anything. Uh most of the time people just consider poets to be like poor. Well, that that's not necessarily an inaccurate evaluation. Mm-hmm. Um like with guys like with Shane Koizan, like the 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 thing portrays him is he's doing well, but Or there's like Byron and people like those people but that's like way, way back in the past. Yeah, right? like that that's significant. They're nobles, they had time back. to write poetry. Yeah, and I think that sort of precludes it. Like guys like again E. Cummings, to keep returning to him, only had a conventional job for six months of his life, and it was only mm-hmm. one job. Like, even less than that, maybe. I don't know. It was it was a short period uh, right after he left Harvard, and he just, he wrote, well, I think The Enormous Room really did him very well, and then his first book of poetry, and then he just sort of lived on that. He was pretty broke by the end of the 30s, actually. Like, I, I don't think he was necessarily raking in the dough, but he had a nice, like, he had a I think he had a three-level house in Greenwich Village, you know, and, and he had another, he had a ranch, he had a farm in upstate New York. Farm? Or a, a cabin upstate New York. I can't find any right now. If anybody knows, feel free to contact us with information at arts at catr.ca. Yep, yep, spam us. We want to know, we want to know. These are the questions that pop up and we're like, hey, we don't know, maybe someone else does. Yeah, is, is there a millionaire boat? And everyone's like, well, uh... But I, we can't even spam you that one. <laughs> but I think the reason why, and this is uh, something that I'm really interested in, is how poetry spread now than before. Poetry used to be kind of a medium where you had to be around to listen to it, right? That's the reason why there was all these like coffee shops and places coming in that people would, you know. Uh, and before that, you read before. it, too. Yeah, you read it, right? I, I think that the phenomenon of social media, reading poetry in general is something that was facilitated a lot yeah. by... Um, the tradition that became slam, I think, an auditory tradition mm-hmm. was like at the point of Byron. I think it was reading them as much as that, and then there was readings. Like I know there's readings there's, of yeah, readings. Like Jack Spicer is a great collection of the readings of his poems at um, uh, pensound.com, and yeah. But now they people use social media, and that's actually helping out Frank O'Hara's legacy a lot. It, it, I think that's the reason why it's so well received, especially with uh, we were talking about uh, Shane, we we're talking about Rupi Kaur, the way that their poetry spread was through, like, viral, like, social media. His was through YouTube. Rupi Kaur is mostly through Instagram. Yes. And, and that's, that's what I That's to also O'Hara, too. Mm-hmm. Um, which is interesting because there's been a lot of criticism of Rupi Kaur by, by poets and by, and by assorted feminists as well about the content of her poems. And I, I'm not well-versed in this, but it's, it's largely about that uh, proliferation through social media. Now, I'm of the opinion that however the message gets there, it gets to you. 
But I'm also just thrilled to see that you can make money at this, <laughs> just in general. Because it's one of those things where, like, to say that you have, we have famous poets, like, that's not something... We do. Oh, that's not something that you'd think of, yeah, though. Like, for the past little while, like, maybe since the last hurrah was probably the 60s, um, with the, um, the last hurrahs of the Beat Generation, but I can't think of... Um, really very well-known poets and of that between that point and I think outside of music mm-hmm. um, and we're seeing some cool stuff mixing with like poetry and music like uh, Worson Shire she is a poet her um, her poetry is actually used in Beyonce's uh, um, music was it yeah. Lemonade, Lemonade. Lemonade. Yeah. yeah there was like, a lot of ones a lot of different ones yeah, yeah. it's great so album. it's really cool how poetry and um, social media and internet and how it kind of like is blending into other um, like you know genres is really interesting to me. I think slam poetry exists halfway between music and stand up in terms really? of performance. That's that's my impression because so mm-hmm. I, I go to poetry slams a lot. I like them. I also go to open mics a decent amount and yep. it's the the difference between well there's the rules of slams which are usually a little more defined than open mics mm-hmm. but it's the presentation is subtly different, but there's a distinct through line between it. Because, um, like, the difference between a lot of slam poetry, like the more freeform slam poetry, and something like stand-up, because there has to be a punchline for a poem to have a point, Yeah, uh, is delivery. Yeah. Almost solely delivery. You could rewrite that as a joke with a setup and a punchline. It would probably wouldn't land as well. And a joke also has, is intended to be humorous. Like, the punchline may not be humorous. It's mm-hmm. often quite the opposite. It's sometimes pretty dark in my experience. But it's a similar founding principle. And it's, I'd, I'd say, similar to songs, maybe so, in that songs have theses as a chorus. It's, it's, it's an interesting comparison, but I think that there's a definite ability to see that. And I think as social media can pare these things down into smaller and smaller uh, portions that are consumed, poetry benefits from that because poems are a lot smaller than other works. And they're pretty quotable, too, by nature. Mm-hmm. So that's part of that for me. That That's encouraging to me because I, I, I like poetry a lot. Like, I'd, I I would really very much appreciate it if, if people like Hart Crane and Frank O'Hara and, um, uh, well, E.E. E. Cummings is already pretty well known. I was going to say E.E. E. Cummings, but that's that's pretty mainstream, man. <laughs> but uh, yeah, Hart Crane, Frank O'Hara, Jack Spicer. I, I, I wish those guys were all three gay guys, uh, three gay white guys from the... Actually, Frank O'Hara and Jack Spicer died at the same age and lived one year apart, so it's pretty eerie. But yeah, um, like the, those are three names I wish were a lot better known, you know, but they're work is in poetry and I think that's kind of becoming a little forgotten so I, I, I'm hoping it brings it back I, I think it will I think right now we are seeing kind of a, um, a a different take on poetry that's becoming more popular I know that a lot of people again like you know bashing on like social media but I I think we're actually in for another like poetry like revolution I really hope so. I, I, I think really so. do. I think so. Uh, we have a few more ads and PSAs, and we'll be mm-hmm. right back. We have a, Speaking a few of more... the evolution of art. Right? Mr. Burns. Good Lord. Let's talk about that right after the break. What newspapers and magazines did you regularly read to stay informed and to understand the I've world? read most of them, again, with a great appreciation for the press, for the media. But like, what I mean, specifically? I'm just... Um... All of them. Want to know more than Sarah Palin? Join CITR's Current Affairs Coordinator, Alex DeBoer, every Tuesday from 4 to 5 p.m. in room 2514 in the AMS Nest to learn best practices for covering local current affairs topics for radio. The weekly training sessions will cover writing for radio, determining newsworthiness, media ethics, interviewing, writing balanced stories, and more. Without the help and support of our friends, we here at CITR wouldn't be able to bring you all the great music, art, cinema, and culture that you love. Thanks to the long-standing support from the Rio Theater, we are able to keep you informed on all the great artists, films, and everything else coming to town there. For all the current information about who and what's playing at the Rio Theater, visit their website at www.riotheater.ca. 
member of CITR and Discorder, but are you a true friend? Get a Friends of CITR and Discorder card for $20 for discounts on Main Street at Antisocial Skateboard Shop, Biltmore Cabaret, Red Cat Records, Lucky Comics, The Wallflower Modern Diner, Neptune Records, The Rag Machine, The Regional Assembly of Text, and so many more. Your true friend. Excellent. <laughs> Let's talk about Mr. Burns, the post-electric play. Uh, it's actually written uh, by Anne Washburn. Uh, she is, I believe, a um, a playwright from Washington. Washington. I, I believe so. Yeah, I believe um, so. I uh, and we interviewed the director Madeline Osborne mm-hmm. last show. Um, She's also the uh, choreographer. Yes, and by God, this needed choreography. This had some pretty good choreography in it, which I wasn't expecting, actually. Um, Now, this is a three-act show. It's about two and a half hours long. It's a great two and a half hours. Um, And before we spoil it, I got to recommend it. Go see it. It's really good. It's really good. It's It's really entertaining. And Summary doesn't really do it justice. You have to see it in person to see how the different pieces, like, come together at the end. It really is uh, something that needs to be seen and then kind of processed individually for you to really feel the impact of the play. Yeah. So um, it starts with uh, this group of people telling the story of Cape Fear, the Simpsons episode. Mm-hmm. Um, that's the first act. The second act is these same characters and a couple new ones putting on the show. Mm-hmm. And this show includes staged commercials and musical numbers. Yep. And we'll talk the reason yeah. why people are doing all this. And then the third act is what this show becomes 80 years down the road. Mm-hmm. Sort of like this game of telephone. Right. <laughs> and it is magnificent. Mm-hmm. So let's talk about uh, our cast a little bit. It's small cast, and these people um, mm-hmm. do... Uh, a lot of different characters, especially you can tell within like act like uh, three ish, right? Yeah, because act act three is supposed to be like this pantomime sort of. It's mm-hmm. it's, it's very uh, a commedia dell'arte sort of thing. If you like to go and let us know about the cast, Jake. So there is uh, Kara Burns as Jenny, uh, Graham Coughing as Matt, who plays Homer, um, Douglas Edinburgh as Gibson, who plays Sideshow Bob, um, Stephanie Itzak as Quincy, who plays Mr. Burns. In the the final show, yeah. That again, the story doesn't necessarily evolve completely accurately. It's kind of the point. Uh, Liz mm-hmm. Kirkland is Colleen, who's kind of the director of the show in the second act. C.T. McGillivray as um, Maria, who is um, um, she's yeah, she, she's sort of like the 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 team kid kind of. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. I believe uh, then, Matt Montgomery is Sam. Yeah, uh, who is. They, they heavily imply he's former military, mm-hmm. uh, sort of their security man, technical. Uh, so the the plot of this starts, um, and the, the brochure, the, the not Program. The brochure, that. Yep. Um, act one is three months after the post-electric age begins, which is a fun way of saying that the apocalypse pretty much happened. Nuclear. Yeah, apocalypse. Well, they, they don't say if it's a nuclear apocalypse, but the it's there is hinted. well, there is going to be a nuclear apocalypse because yeah. the plants melt down. Yeah, because there's no electricity. So yeah, yeah, that's kind of a bummer. Mm-hmm. You know, world gradually seeds into Deathlands. I mentioned this to you at the thing. Yeah. Uh, act two is seven years after, uh, and Act three is eighty-two years after. So let's t- let's kind of break down Act one when we first see Act one. How did you take it? So. Uh, Act one was what I was closest to what I expected. Mm-hmm. It it was this sort of communion of people using fiction as a way to get along. Um, it was great to hear Gilbert and Sullivan again. Gibson actually his character is because uh, if anyone's seen the Simpsons episode of Cape Fear, they do HMS Pinafore in that, and that becomes a thing. It's, it's good to hear Gilbert and Sullivan again. Mm-hmm. Um, but it's these characters recounting the episode and. They get that feeling of when you're recounting something. But you don't really, like that, really 100% know. That bit of aphasia. Like, a, a huge theme of this is the forgetting. That's right. Which is also motivates the entire plot of the second act of the play. Mm-hmm. Because by the second act of the play, 
they've gotten to the point where they have to buy lines to get the play more to make the play more accurate. That's right. And then there's some tensions about that because companies take them by force as well. Mm-hmm. It becomes it uh, this I this entertainment that's become like their way of like coping actually becomes like commercialized and becomes like a need for them to like survive almost very, people use lines good. as like way of like uh, bartering for like food or money almost yeah and well there's the the there's a, a great deal of paranoia throughout mm-hmm. like the characters they're all armed and the first one and they nearly shoot gibson because he he meets them mm-hmm. and they all pull guns and search his bag when once he shows up uh, and they get to read names of people they have. They each have ten names they read to other people from notebooks um, that to, for the other people to recognize. Mm-hmm. They never show when this originated, but I'm assuming it originated from a... Because they say there were emergency broadcasts before the electricity cut out, so I'm assuming that's where it came from. Um, and throughout the, the play, there's this uh, distinct concern for... Um, these the connections that underpin something like the simpsons where it's so reference based right when those connections are forgotten or when they're misapprehended what that does to it and if the third act proves anything it's that the result is still really really entertaining yep <laughs> oh man it's it's really hard to describe the third act without it looks like tim burton had an acid trip and then tried to restructure the simpsons the entire fourth season of The Simpsons, I think. Was it was the... it was really something special, I'd say. You can't really go in there as a Simpsons purist, or you're going to be like, well, you you could for like the first to be, few. To be fair, you also can't watch most of the second half of The Simpsons seasonal run <laughs> while being a Simpsons purist, where it's slowly turning into Family Guy. <laughs> the one thing I really like about Act 3 is that it really felt mythical. I think that was like the main purpose that they're trying to do is like it how did. how it went from just a little story to like um, to performance to ritual almost. Yeah, and the ascension of this story into something that's pantomime, that's abstracted, because these characters are all wearing the Simpsons masks, mm-hmm. um, which is interesting because I was talking to Madeline about Bart as this archetypical figure, and he becomes a heroic figure, mm. which he kind of is, but he's also not like. He's he's a prankster. Right. And pranksters can be as obnoxious as they can be heroic. And if YouTube proves us anything, is that the former beats the latter in, <laughs> in real life. Um, and it, it, it was really interesting in light of that. Like, I would not be surprised if Anne Washburn thought of the last scene and then wrote these other ones to get there. Mm. Because that is what I would have done. Mm-hmm. Um and honestly, like, the thing about this, I, I told you this at in the theater, is that this reminded me a lot of when I was younger and I'd watch episodes of not always The Simpsons. It was usually either SpongeBob or MASH, because I watched a lot of MASH when I was younger. Uh-huh. And I would recount the the episode to people, but I would switch it around to make it seem less like plagiarism. Right, right. You know, and i put my own characters in, and eventually that's, that's one of the ways I started um, – writing my own stories, um, writing like, uh, and more, more generally writing jokes by stealing lines, because I, I still do that. Mm. I still try to do an impression of Hawkeye Pierce for most of my life. Um, you know, we'll see how that goes. Mm-hmm. Yeah, check it out. It's a great play. I think it was really, really well done. You definitely have to be there because the visual cues is what really makes it really strong. The dancing and the choreography was also very good. So if you can, definitely check out the show. Unfortunately, we have a shorter show today, so we'll be heading on our way out. But we will be back next week. Well, for our summer shows, they're going to be a little shorter, too, because I'm (laughs) going to have a class after this. (laughs) Anyway, thank you so much for listening to The Arts Report. I'm Ashley Park. I'm Jake Clark. Cheers. Cheers. (laughs) 